welcome to the Virtually Done podcast. My name is Gemma and I'm the founder of Virtually Done. The Virtually Done podcast is created as a space to start important conversations that are often overlooked and speak to women in business with amazing stories and even better advice. It makes me so happy that you're here listening and I would absolutely love for you to tag me on social media at Virtually Done and let me know what you think. My hope is that you're able to take something away from every single episode that you can action into your business and that you're able to gain an insight into the behind the scenes of what running a business is really like. So let's dive in. I actually went back through our DMs to have a look at our first conversation. And I love this because we were in a group call together and I heard you talk about money. And I was like, oh my God, I've never heard anyone talk about money like that before. And I messaged you on Instagram and literally just messaged you saying, I need whatever you're selling. (laughs) And I paid you straight away. Um, And I think that says everything about your passion when you speak about stuff like you just fully got me and I was like I need to learn from Ray so thank you so much for being here do you want to kind of just give everyone a little bit of an overview of what you do how you help people sure thank you that was so kind um yeah I'm Ray Dohar I have been coaching uh, full-time for uh, I guess three years now maybe three years now um and my focus uh within that the things that I speak on and teach on um it's changed a lot. It's shifted a lot in different seasons as different things become sort of like activated or become really alive for me. Um, Most recently, as of this year, 2022, I work exclusively with service-based entrepreneurs. Um, The topics that we cover are really varied, um, but the overarching theme currently is that they're all service-based entrepreneurs looking to scale to and past the six-figure mark. without burning out and while maintaining the core values of integrity and really excellence in in their work. Can you touch on integrity and what that means? Because I feel like we see it a lot online, but I'm not sure if people really understand like what that means in practice in your business. That's such a beautiful question. Thank you. Um, I say always that integrity is being integrated in your beliefs, your thoughts, your words, and your actions. So it means that you're really unified within yourself. You're not internally hypocritical in and of yourself. And what I can say about integrity is something that I say often when somebody is looking at maybe a different coach or a different service provider or someone in their life and being like, how can they do that? How can she think this? How can he you know, think that this is okay? I, I like to remind people that integrity is not um, a magnetic north. That is to say, integrity is not the same for everyone. I can be doing something um, that you disagree with, that you think is it's wrong. But often what happens is if you hear me speak about it, or if you watch the way that I act, the way that I carry myself through it, you will understand that there's an internal congruency within myself, right? So often I, I disagree with somebody's um, final hypothesis, with an action that somebody takes or with somebody's conclusion that they've made. However, when I feel into uh, how they're carrying themselves, the way that they're speaking about it, the care and the intentionality with which they have arrived at said conclusion or said action, I can step back and go, well, I don't really agree with what they're doing, but I can feel that it is in integrity for them. Of course, I want to caveat, I can never be 100% sure how somebody else feels, but I do think that sometimes um, we can conflate integrity with right and wrong. 
And there are many people who work with me, many people in my community who say, you know, they have differing views from me. They do not agree with everything that I say, with everything that I think, with everything that I do, but they can feel my heart in it. So again, integrity, very simply, is just integration between your beliefs, thoughts, words, and actions. I love the way you put that. I feel like we could end the podcast there and that's powerful in itself. Um, (laughs) It's such a good point though, because I think we do, like you say, you see integrity as well that's an integrity for me and therefore it's right and that's not an integrity for me so therefore it's wrong but like that's such a good point that I've never even thought about myself where like just because it's not an integrity for you doesn't mean anything about anyone else because we're all so different so I love that um something I would love you to touch on a little bit is your kind of views around money just because that's how I first found you and that's how I first kind of fell in love with your way of speaking so could you like tell us some of the common money related issues that you see in business owners? Sure. So how I got into understanding money, right? What I always say about my childhood is I watched Wolf of Wall Street and I thought it was a comedy. I grew up with some really severely dysfunctional thoughts and behaviors around money and uh, the relations, the relationships that come off of what we do with money and and how we behave in the world to get money from other people. And I struggled. I was in really, really high credit card debt. I know that it sounds hyperbolic, but I sincerely believed that like credit card was money until I was probably 27 years old. And at some point I realized credit card was not money. All of that needed to be paid back. The balance that I was holding on my credit card was not a balance at all. It was, it was a weight. Uh, It was an albatross. It was uh, an anchor. And I felt um, intensely sort of dysphoric and disharmonious within myself. And I felt a lot of pain um, because it it seemed to me that I couldn't possibly understand money, that money was abusing me, that money was abusing my family, that money was evil and, and created evil in the world. And the only way that we could be free of this was to somehow uh, transcend the, the use of money. Um, how common that is, by the way, for any of us to look at a system and see something is really broken. And, and the only conclusion we can draw from that is like, I must abstain. I must find a way out of the human experience, right? We, we don't have tools. We don't center the practice of resilience. So um, the only thing that we can come up with in our, in our brittleness, in our woundedness is like, there must be a way out of money. There must be a way out of uh, the climate crisis. There must be a way out. Like there must be something that I can do that just absolves me of any complicity. But when we look at what I would say, the meaning of that which we call God, I would say that it is the understanding of the energetic interconnectedness of all things. And I too am part of the all things. I am part of the all that is. So there is no abstaining. There is no tapping out. There is no way out of the human experience. And so when I really allowed myself to feel fully confronted with that, I started thinking, well, what if there was another way to experience money? When I understand that God is the interconnectedness of all things, I start to view the world and the universe as relational. And then that brings into question, is money its own thing? Or is my relationship to money the driving force that is creating what I'm looking at? at least to some degree. Similarly, right, we've all had former partners and maybe you experience them as being very jealous, very controlling, but their current partner now did not bring that out in them. 
Does that mean that this person is or is not that thing? No, it's more complex than that. It means that the alchemy of your relationship brought those specific qualities out in each other. So it's both true and not true and something beyond both of those things. And so I started looking at my life and being like, well, what works? And sex, my relationship to sex and sexuality has always been something that I've understood really well, that has come really easy to me, something around which I feel no shame. I do not have a hard time talking about it. And so I started looking at the qualities, not of sex, but of my relationship to it, how I held myself in it. Was it that my sex life was perfect? No. Have horrible things never happened to me? Of course, many of them have, but I don't make them mean anything about my worth my identity or the validity of my desires moving forward. And I started to think, could I do that around money? And so if you're a person who's listening to this and you're facing struggles with money, I invite you to step back and become curious about what in my life is working and what is my relationship to that thing, to that area of my life? How do I conduct myself? Or maybe it's a person, maybe you feel really confident as a parent or as a spouse, or maybe as a, a caregiver to your pet or something like that. How do you show up? in that relationship. And suddenly you start to see, oh, I don't expect so much. Oh, I don't assume the worst. I actually extend some kind of benefit of the doubt for that person, for that relationship, for that situation. When something catastrophic happens, I don't immediately blame myself. I don't assume that I'm broken or I've ruined something. I don't experience these things so fatalistically. You start to experience in functional relationships an element of safety, an element of trust, an element of play. And of course, all of those things are, are learned and earned, but you have been willing over and over and over again to put yourself in a situation to do them. So um, I think that money is like everything else. I think that money uniquely though, the, the unique aspect of money is that it is an amplification energy, right? One of the big fears that comes up with money is it's going to corrupt me. It's a corrosive and corrupting force. Um, this couldn't be further from the truth, obviously, because I know plenty of poor people who are terrible. And yes, of course, if they had more money, they'd be more terrible. But I also know a lot of really kind people who are really curious and really interested in their power and in um, wealth disparity and in really meaningful things, both in society, in the world, in their relationships, in the art, in the business that they create. And money allows them to amplify what was already there. And then of course, there are people who are neither of those extremes and exist somewhere in the middle. And so when we can take the power away from money, and just see it as a microphone, right? We're recording right now. If I don't talk into the microphone, it's not going to phonate sound on its own. It's only amplifying what I put into it. We start to experience money as an amplification energy, as well as experience our relationship to money as a mirror sort of relation. And to see that, yes, of course, there are socioeconomic realities, but we also get out to some degree what we put in and we have more autonomy and more responsibility, ability to respond than we give ourselves credit for. It just makes total sense. But I think sometimes we get so caught up in the, oh my God, I need to make more money. I need to make more money. How am I going to pay the rent? Like bills are going up. Oh, and we get like so overwhelmed by all of the pressure that we forget what money really is. And something that I like connected when I was um, looking through some of your lessons was that the way that I showed up with my relationship with money was very similar to how I was showing up in my previous romantic relationships. And I didn't connect those two things until I was working through your course. Right. And so often, so use the example that you just gave, where's the money coming from? I need more money. I need more. How am I going to make more money? Now, 
um, project that onto a romantic or a sexual relationship. And suddenly maybe it's, I need more attention. Why aren't you paying attention to me? Why won't anyone give me attention? When we operate from that place, the energy that we put out in the relationship becomes then very destructive and very disruptive and very corrosive. Suddenly my partner experiences me as very needy. Maybe I'm not even uh, declaring that appropriately to my partner. I'm going outside of the relationship. I'm doing things that inadvertently do the exact opposite of the ultimate thing that I'm trying to do just because I'm showing up from an energy that's really disempowered and really expectant and really entitled. Yeah, exactly that. And one of the things that I hear a lot from the people that I work with is this fear that if they spend money, it's going to disappear and they're never going to get any more. So they kind of hold on to it and don't want to use it. Um, And I think that then generates this like even worse relationship with money. So what would you say to those people? Mm, Right. So I will actually use the lens of parenting for this one, although I'm not a parent. Um, When we treat money as a dead thing, right? A thing that we can't lose, a thing that it that it can't grow, a thing that it's not able to circulate and learn and grow and shrink and evolve and alchemize. Um, It's sort of like helicopter parenting. It's sort of like saying, I love you so much. I don't want you to go anywhere. I don't want you to try anything. I don't want you to explore. I don't want you to play. I don't want you to get hurt. I don't want you to die. I don't want you to leave, right? And that's how so many people approach parenting and also romantic relationships, other relationships in the life in, in our lives. But I think that that one's quite visceral. And when we do that, even though it's rooted in a very deep love, it's overshadowed by fear of loss. And it's actually not at the deepest level a fear for the other being. At an even deeper level, it is a fear of what it means about us if that loss arises. It's a fear that we will not be able to survive the pain. We will not be able to survive the grief. And it is an attachment to a version of self, and in this case, the child, or in this case, the amount of dollars in your bank account. It is an attachment to the version of yourself that the second that you attach to it, it already no longer exists and has become something else. What I mean by that is the energy that allowed you to acquire, to accumulate a certain level of wealth, certain dollars in your bank account came from being in your aliveness. Now, I wanna point out that there are bad people who make money in bad ways. I don't wanna pretend that the universe is always uh, skewing toward the light because I don't believe that that is true. However, If this is the worldview that you would like to subscribe to, if this is the reality channel that you want to click into where you do want to spend money and the money that you acquire and you want to make money and you want to grow your wealth and the money that you engage with is an extension of your integrity, of your alignment, of that which is important to you, then the money that you received from those energetic expansions shrinks and dies when you treat it like it is a thing of the past, when you need it to remain what it already was in the same way that you will not buy new clothes for your child because you don't want to acknowledge that they are growing, that they are changing, that their style is different, that their bodies are different, right? And so when you're holding on to that, you're turning something living and dynamic into something stale and dead. And nothing can grow when nothing is allowed to grow. So the same energy that you're projecting onto saving all of your money. If you have to save the money, that means you can't spend it. That means you don't have it. That means it's gone. 
right? When we approach things from that energetic space, we create the very thing that we're afraid of. So when I refuse to allow my bank account to dip for any reason, because I'm so afraid that it will never come back to me, I'm essentially wiping my account clean. If I can't spend those dollars, then I don't have those dollars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I feel that so much. And I think this kind of leads us nicely onto something else that you talk about quite a lot, which is that balance of like business and pleasure, or maybe you wouldn't even call it a balance. I don't know, but mm-hmm. um, I've heard you talk about those two things. And I think a lot of people struggle with this, don't they? It's like, it has to be business and therefore it's boring and it's restrictive and it's not fun or it's pleasure. And therefore I'm not earning money. Um, so can you talk a little bit about your opinion on having both business and pleasure? Mm, thank you. So I didn't say this at the top of the podcast, but as a person, I am non-binary. I use they and she pronouns interchangeably. Um, And this arrival did not come from a long history of gender dysphoria. It came from a longstanding practice of dissolving binaries anytime I saw them in nature or in my life, because we could go on a really long tangent about this. I won't. Suffice it to say, the concept of opposites is a white Western concept that doesn't exist in all cultures throughout history. It is not an inherent given. It is not a natural truth. For example, if we want to look at the biological differences in biological sex between males and female bodies, if I want to look at all life that we know on the planet, we've got lizards and agave plants and basil and flowers and trees and sharks and dinosaurs and rats and humans. Of all life on the planet, a male body and a female body are not opposites at all. Isn't opposite supposed to mean as different as possible? They're 98% the same, right? So anytime that we're looking at two things and we want to position them as opposites, the way that we can approach this in the broadest sense in a sort of lifestyle meditative practice that I've been using for a very long time is to look at how are these things more alike than they are different? How are these things more similar And then what are the differences and what makes them meaningful in what context? So when it comes to business and pleasure, I think that really when we break down how we experience one versus how we experience the other, business is the one that I'm allowed to do in public and pleasure is the one that I'm allowed to do in private. And when we treat them as though their very definitions are dependent on how they are different than the other, we make them more and more and more and more and more egregiously different from one another, taking both of them away from the truth that they're not opposites at all. They're just ways of being in the world. One of them is a way that I relate to earn money and to create service and to create meaning and to suggest that I have to do that without pleasure is actually plugging into, again, a white Western, very specifically Protestant view of the world that says I can work now so that I can enjoy life later. I work hard so that I can retire. I pray to God now so that when I die, I will go to heaven. It's always this worldview where in this now moment, I deny myself so that I can receive in another moment. But let me ask you this. If you were to plant a a chicken bone, a disgusting, moldy, rotting chicken bone, and tell me that if I'm willing to work with this disgusting, rotting chicken bone now, someday it will grow into an apple tree. It will not. The seeds of what you plant are always the harvest that you will have. 
So if you approach your life from this place of rigidity, from this place of withholding, now I'm not saying that you can't make hard decisions, that you can't stick to a budget early on in your business, that you don't sometimes have to do a thing that you don't like in service of something that you want to enjoy later. I'm not saying that that never happens, but if you approach energetically your entire life, your entire business of these are all the hard things I have to do now so that I can enjoy something later, you can't plant rigidly and expect flexibility. Because flexibility, because pleasure, because joy is a way of choosing to be in the world. And you don't have to conduct business from a cold place, from a dead place, from a stagnant place, from a place that is born in what other people whose opinions you don't even respect have told you that business is supposed to be so that you can privately sneak out tiny moments of pleasure later. Your pleasure is not something that you have to earn. Your pleasure is what you are and how you get to choose to be in the world. But really, we've been indoctrinated to believe that pleasure is a dirty private thing. For example, I have a course coming out right now this week um, called Business and Pleasure, at least the, the week that we're recording this. It's called Business and Pleasure. And I wasn't allowed to name the Facebook group that because you're not allowed to put the word pleasure in the name of a Facebook group because it is so ghastly because it is so scary because it is so unfathomable and of course because we associate it with shadow with sex which isn't which isn't shameful which isn't guilty by nature but um with a certain kind of sex that is really lecherous um really lascivious and so we have divorced those concepts in our mind. And so the, the question that I offer to those who are uh, on the journey for the course right now, but maybe for anyone who's listening, this might also help. I would take you through the exercise of what would I have to believe differently about pleasure for it to become the center point of my life and my work and my relationships, right? And one of the things that immediately comes up for me is, um, if I were to center pleasure in my life, the immediate thought that came up for me when I first started doing this work was the belief that like it would be selfish and the rest of my relationships would suffer. Rather than seeing pleasure as something that would give me more bandwidth, that would give me more generosity of spirit, I saw it as something that was going to somehow take away, which also lets me know that I had a belief somewhere in me that pleasure was limited. And for me to have more, somebody else had to have less. Again, pleasure came up maybe as something that was private, as something that it would be inappropriate for me to share. Maybe I attach a story to that. How can I be enjoying my life if so many are suffering? This is one of the challenging things about forward momentum in our lives. We can hold both. Again, things are not binaries. We can hold a duality. We can hold a dual perspective. So I don't have to make someone lose in order for me to win. I don't have to see myself as withholding. I don't have to ignore the media. I don't have to ignore people who disagree with me. I don't have to look away from people's pain in order for me to hold pleasure, in order for me to hold success. When I work with a client, yes, of course, I guess technically they chose me over someone else, but that's not necessarily true. I've had seasons of my life where I've had three coaches at a time. So continuing to just dissolve the binaries of anything. And then rather than seeing business and pleasure as arch nemeses, pivoting Rather than making business and commerce and productivity the center point of our lives, switching and saying, what if pleasure is the center focus of my life? Of course, pleasure can be more than sexual pleasure. Pleasure and enjoyment and contentment and fulfillment and enrichment are the center of my life. What would I need to change so that that could be possible? And how might that change how I showed up in my business? And I think that there's a lot of like rich uh, possibility there. 
I actually think this has been one of the biggest lessons for me in my business that's changed things because I always used to have that mindset that you're kind of talking about there of you can have this or you can have this. And I would get stuck trying to make a decision between one thing or another. And then I one day was like, what if I could have both? And having that mindset in so many different situations is just like, it just changes things so much. I had a client recently and we were talking about all the things that she wanted to implement strategy wise. And then she was talking about how she could have fun afterwards to celebrate. And I was like, what if you could have fun doing the strategy and it was like she'd never thought about that before and I don't think um enough people talk about this so I'm so happy that you're talking about it and also I love how passionate you are you get me so fired up I'm like (laughs) I'm like so ready to like change the world right now after listening to you um no I love it and I I think that you're so right as well it's that thing where if you think about it it doesn't make a lot of sense. And I think it's just that, you know, growing up and through our life and what our parents have said and all those things, you just have these beliefs that it's like when you question them, like, does that make sense for me personally? Do you, um, obviously listening to you, it sounds like you have a really strong understanding of all of this, but do you have moments where you think, oh, like I didn't practice what I preached there or, oh, I, I forgot to do the thing that I always talk about? Oh my God, of course, literally always. And so this is really interesting. Um, I was just speaking to a friend and he was like, you are so confident. You're so sure of yourself. And this is actually feedback that I've received from many people in my entire life. And maybe early in my adolescence, it was kind of a protective um, posturing. But now if I'm completely honest, I don't experience myself as, I, I feel that confidence is something that somebody on the outside tells you about yourself. It's not really, as somebody who's repeatedly called confident, at least for me, it's not an internal experience. The other thing is I'm not really attached to being right. So the clarity and the authority through which I speak is not coming from a place of, I'm sure I'm right about this. It's coming from a place of like, I don't know, it's just how I talk. And if I find out that I'm wrong, I really don't have a problem being like, hey, I was so wrong about this. And actually I kind of, love those moments where I get to be wrong because it's an opportunity for me to learn. Again, I don't conflate being right with being worthy and being good and and being wrong with being bad and being unworthy and being unlovable. And I think that that's really an important piece of it. Yeah, I am. This is definitely something as well that comes up a lot in business, right? Like there are going to be times where you do something and you're like, in my head, that was like so good. And in real life, it was a bit of a flop. And being able to see that as like, it's okay. Like failure is okay. It's not this bad thing. Um, Whereas I think at school for me anyway, failure was like the worst. It was like the thing that you completely avoided at all costs and that you should be ashamed of. And now I'm like, actually failure means I did something. Failure is not again, the opposite of success. It is something that is required for us to do over and over and over again. And when we are able to look at something and say we failed, and not make it mean anything, again, about our worth, our identity, the validity of our desires, then all it can mean is some kind of data. So maybe you put something out and you say, yeah, it kind of flopped. Well, what does that mean? Does it mean that you're unworthy and that you should not have created that thing? No. Does it mean maybe your marketing wasn't that clear? Maybe you weren't demonstrating the value of your offer to that person, to your community in a way that they could really understand. Does it mean that maybe you put it out not exactly at the right time. You've got so many offers. Maybe you haven't been focusing on growth in your business. So you're selling similar offers to the same people and they're not really interested in buying. It doesn't mean anything about you. 
but it does mean something. And when we conflate failure with a low self-worth, then we never give ourselves the opportunity to find out what it might mean. And I think that the other piece of this is the awareness that trusting yourself is twofold. Trusting yourself is not only trusting that you will make the right decision. Trusting yourself is also an awareness that when you make quote unquote the wrong decision, that you will be able to figure it out. And when we don't have that as a foundation, we become very risk averse people. And to your point about what we learned in school, in school, the goal was not always knowledge. The, the goal in school was often obedience. The goal in school was often, did you follow the steps? Did you do as you were told? And I'm a former teacher. I'm an early childhood education. I was a Montessori teacher. Um, Montessori, of course, challenges some norms within school. But I can acknowledge that when there's one teacher in the classroom and 20 or 30 children, my priorities for what will create cohesion, for what will create order, for what will create just an ability for us to survive another day, prioritize a kind of peace that is arrived at when one force, me, the teacher, dominates another force, the group of the students, so that we can have some kind of cohesion. It's not a piece that is generative and generous in its nature because there is not energy for that. But a classroom, when you're in childhood, does not in any way mirror or mimic the real world. So there's really no reason to internalize this as a concept and to be using that framework as a metric for going forward, right? I have so many clients. This is really interesting. I attract a lot of clients who identify as people pleasers. And what I think they get, to use a language that is sometimes used in psychology, the corrective experience that they have with me is I'm not pleased. Like either way, I'm also not displeased. Is that like, I don't have a reaction to the part in a client that wants to please the coach. I'm not like, Ooh, you did such a good job or Ooh, you did such a bad job. I'm very neutral and I don't make it mean anything about the client. And that's really helpful. But to your point, I think a lot of people need to seek out opportunities to have experiences like that because our early childhood and our formative years don't set us up for that. And therefore, as adults, most people, most structures, most cultures, most businesses don't have the creative reimagining possible in order to offer a different kind of relationship. Yeah, I, you know, what? I've never even thought about school in that way. Um, but it just makes so much sense because I, I don't know if you've experienced this too, but I've had a, a bunch of clients come to me recently who are just fed up of rules and they're like, mm. I just want to do things different. I want to question the norms and I want to do the things that I'm scared of. And they're just fed up of kind of like being told what to do, which I think is coming from Instagram changes and feeling like they have to kind of obey the Instagram rules and they want to rebel against that. Um, and yeah, I think it's a really beautiful thing to be able to to you know whether it's failure or whether it's like doing something really great and to not necessarily associate that with like how good of a person you are because I would also say that you know business is always up and down in terms of things that work or things that don't go as you planned or unexpected stuff and if your uh like emotions are kind of following that it's going to be such a rough ride I would say would you agree yes yes if if any metric outside of you honestly I whether it's numbers on a scale, whether it's how many people are willing to go on a date with you, whether it's how many people liked your last post, whether it's how many people bought, if all of those things have authority to make you feel worthy or unworthy, you are setting yourself and your life up for failure and you are putting unfair pressure on, in the case of clients, let's say I launched this course and no one joins, um, I'm putting pressure on my clients to make me feel worthy 
before I've even delivered the course. First of all, it's completely inappropriate for me to come to my clients pandering for worth, but now I'm making them responsible for propping me up before I've ever even done anything. Again, I work with service providers. Your work is meant to serve other people, not yourself. And if I understand, I, I grew up, as I said, in a very um, economically challenging environment where there often was not always enough money. And I understand the pain of genuine poverty. I understand the fear of having your lights shut off. And if you want to do this work, you need to learn not to let your emotions get the better of you. I'm not saying deny how you feel. I'm saying you need to learn to dialogue with your fear. You need to learn to hold the vision, hold the course, and to continue to show up in a heart of service and not a heart of need. If everything went to crap for me tomorrow and I was not able to generate an income and I was not able to find clients, I would go back to teaching in a heartbeat and make $40,000 a year until I could get my business off the ground because I owe it to my business. My business does not owe it to me. I think it's really important that people understand that or they will not succeed. Their business will not be sustainable because there will always be a season where growth is not 100% linear. There will always be a moment where a client is not a right fit and maybe they want a refund or maybe you have controversy with someone on your team and you are not good as a leader. Maybe you pay someone a lot of money to make your website and you don't like it and you don't know how to change it. Whatever it is, when these things have control over how you be in the world, you will not be able to sustain entrepreneurship. Yeah, I could not agree with you more. And I actually remember you did a post on this on Instagram and I'm going to link it in the uh, show notes because I remember reading it and I just was like, this is it. Like, this is the thing everyone needs to hear. Um, so I'm going to link that. But um, <laughs> question for you. Do you feel like you share quite personal things on Instagram? Because I think this is like different for everyone, what you class as personal. Do you think that you do? So I identify as someone who has a flash processing system. It's okay. usually a very fast for me to see something, identify something, work through something, and I'm on the other side of it, even if it's still happening around me. For example, my mother got sick and died very quickly after I found out that she was sick. And I was kind of able to talk about it from a pretty healed place really quickly. I didn't talk about it for a while because until her passing, it didn't actually feel like my story. It felt like my mother's battle with cancer. Um, and... I didn't share about it more out of respect for her and where she was, and also because I didn't really feel the need to. So I share things that a lot of other people identify as brave, but I don't experience them as brave because I'm not scared to share them. So that's where I stand personally. Um, the metric that I'm quite fond of and that I often give to my clients is you need to share when you are in a space not to be emotionally falling apart. And this isn't because your vulnerability is bad or dirty or wrong, but it is because when your social media is an extension of your business, you are there to be a guide. You are there to be an expert, whether or not you're a coach. Um, you are there to be an authority and to be gaining trust with the people in your community by virtue of being worth their trust. And so I also think it's okay as a placeholder to say, hey, this is really a tough week for me and I'm not really ready to talk about it or this isn't uh, an area of my life that I feel comfortable sharing on social media, but suffice it to say, I won't be around much this week because I'm, I'm dealing with a lot of things. Um, and then finally, I would say, whatever you wanna share, once you share it, it becomes someone else's. 
and people are going to have reactions and people are going to make assumptions and people are going to make it about their own story. And if that's not okay for you, um, you probably shouldn't share because otherwise you're going to spend a lot of time policing people's reactions to something that you chose to put up for free on the internet. So I don't think sharing personal things is right or wrong. I do think that um, more and more and more as we do this, humanizing your brand is required. But I certainly do not think that it should come at the cost of you having to extract your life for content. I think that that's something very different than being in a place that is healed, that is accessible, that is more or less integrated, or at least you have awareness of how much integration is left to go, that you're able to share something that offers wisdom, that offers solidarity, that offers insight, that offers humor, that offers something enjoyable and connective and generative and relevant for your community. What you said there about, um you know, once you put it out into the world, like people are going to have opinions on it and they're going to make assumptions and things like that. Does that ever worry you? Or is it something that you're at this place where you put things out, you close Instagram and you, you don't really think about it anymore? No, it, worther, it worries me so much. It worries me. It's probably my top worry. If I'm honest, I, I lose sleep over it. Um, and I think that it's the reason. So, okay. So I was a, an early childhood educator. And before that I have an acting degree, so I'm pretty good on camera. I'm a pretty decent extemporaneous speaker. I also have a writing background. Um, but in all of the years that I have been an entrepreneur, I have never engaged in growth tactics. And I actually like regularly remove followers, even from my Instagram so that it has never been above 5,000 followers. And part of this is something that I still haven't resolved in myself um, and in the world, which is that as things gain momentum, as things become more and more and more pro proliferated within the collective, they become more popular, they also become shallower and sort of watered down. We can see this in you know, the popularization of yoga, the popularization of you know, maybe manifestation, law of attraction, things like that that are incredibly nuanced, that are now taught as blunt, bad, black or white, very specific, generic, is simultaneously specific and generic ways of approaching life in the world. And my fear of the nuance of the things that I have to say prevents me from doing anything that would increase my capacity to say them. It's actually a huge deal breaker for me. And I've had to sit with the fact that maybe I will never take all of the opportunities that I have had to grow my platform. And I know that more is more is kind of the common refrain that the more people that I serve, um, the better I've done. And I've had to really sit with and acknowledge like, you know, I, I have clients, I have friends, you know, who have huge platforms, 80,000. Um, one of my friends, a platform that he grew is over a million. And when we talk about the impact that he's had on on people's lives or some of my clients when we talk about the impact that they've had um it's these moments it's these turning points of like i saw this one meme that you did or this post really helped me or i shared this and and this really changed my marriage it's these it's these drop in the bucket moments that are incredibly meaningful um but they're not longer term relationships and i believe that this work exists best in a relationship that is um, titrated, in a relationship that sort of drips and evolves and expands over time. And so I do my best to keep my work long form, to keep my work relational and um, 
to understand and to to maintain as much of the nuance as I can because I because without that I am afraid of what happens to the power of the work that I put out in the world not because it's my idea just because when you sit very close to the truth you feel I, I don't want to position myself as the as the arbiter of truth in any way um but how it how I experience it whether I'm right or wrong is that when you sit very close to the truth it can feel really powerful and if you're willing to use that in order to let the light of the truth reflect on you as though you are the source of the light that can be a really dangerous thing and I don't like the way that it looks when I'm looking at it and I haven't really found another way forward but I'm open to finding that to have both to have both the growth and also to maintain as much of the nuance intact as I possibly can that's like so interesting to hear from you because that's not what I thought you were going to say honestly I um <laughs> I've, I've never heard anyone who's sort of said that they actively keep their followers smaller than it could be um but it's really interesting because again like it makes sense what you're saying and to be honest I did something similar I when I was about to hit the 10k mark in terms of followers on Instagram I deleted like 4,000 and part of that was like I don't know strategic because some of them were inactive accounts and things like that but also I think part of it was me thinking oh my god I don't want to hit 10k what do you think the 10k means to you I think it was the fear of um people thinking that I am more of a big deal than I am and maybe taking my words as I don't know, like my clients and people who have followed me for a long time, I feel like they could see my stories. And even if they misread something or thought that something came off a bit weird, like they know me well enough to know what I'm like. Whereas I feel like when it gets above 10K, at least in my head, people, there's less connection and people are going to make even more assumptions and things like that. And they might misread what I'm saying and assume that I'm a person that I'm not. And all of that fear was just a lot for me. Right. And again, you know, I'm, I'm an actor. So some of the people that I grew up with, some of the people that I went to school with or that I, that I've dated or that other people that I've met in other places, like some of my friends are very famous people. And when I look at, you know, how they use their platforms, sometimes I agree with it and I'm really proud. And sometimes I don't agree with it, but I also have to remind myself that growth and fame, at least in the case of my friends, um, is not something that they asked for. And if they want to reclaim their platform and reclaim their voice as a space for them to be their full selves and not to have to worry about how other people experience them, I think that that's really profound. And I think that that's really beautiful. And also, right, as we grow, we all have to get to a point where we can acknowledge I am not responsible for how someone experiences me. But as we grow past that, again, it's not really about me taking personally how someone experiences me it's about not allowing the size of a platform to falsely influence um the weight and the quality and the value available in my work right and and maybe to your point i would prefer that my work stands alone and speaks for itself and not um the court of public opinion but when you have a larger platform it can be so challenging also to find the line between okay, so I got to this point by saying, I don't care what people think about me. I'm not responsible for how people experience me. But at a certain point, it's really challenging. And I don't have an answer for this. This isn't, a, this isn't a leading question. It's a sincere question for which I don't have an answer. At what point do you have a responsibility for knowing how much influence you have over the way people think, the way people speak, the way people opine about different things? 
it's complicated. Mm, and I think it's one of those things that the more you think about it, the more, at least for me, the more in my head I get. And this really hit me when I, I once mentioned a platform I was using and I was just kind of doing a day in the life. I wasn't recommending it or anything like that. Um, and this platform was like in the background of one of my stories. And I purposely hadn't recommended it or talked about it because I wasn't sure if I even liked it myself. And I actually concluded that I didn't like it and I thought it was a waste of money. But just off me mentioning it once on stories, like in the background, like four people messaged me and said that they'd signed up for it. And I was like, oh shit, like people are actually mm. doing things because of things that I've put out into the world. And then I felt real guilt because I didn't actually like the platform. And that, I think that plays on my mind sometimes. Right. And alternatively, sometimes we're opening ourselves to a barrage of criticism, right? What if instead four people had reached out and been like, oh my God, you use that. It's so stupid. It's such a waste of money. I can't believe you did that. And suddenly you're like, mm -hmm. I didn't even endorse it. And even if I did, I mean, get a hobby. Might I recommend Sujoku? <laughs> oh my gosh. It's a wild world that we live in, isn't it? <laughs> Oh, okay, right. Two final questions. Um, the first one is, is there anything that is widely kind of like accepted or um, kind of praised in the coaching industry that you actually really disagree with? <laughs> you should we need another podcast episode. Just I this. was just going to say, just book me back. Just have me back. Just have me back. <laughs> um, one of the things that I've been railing against for a very long time, and if anyone is interested, I have a free hour long video in my Facebook group that breaks it down. I really rare, I rail against the use of the language feminine and masculine. I will take anyone to task on this. I literally researched it using a well-known, highly respected model of cultic abuse and held not the concept of gender, but specifically the Western gender binary up to, and the way that it is used in the coaching space, up to a model of cultic abuse, and absolutely it passes the test. So that's one of the things that I would say. Um, and then I think that there is a real poverty of quality in the coaching space. And I believe that coaching, yeah, at me for it. Everyone can hate me. I don't care. I don't need you to like me. Um, I think that coaching has become a, a simulacra of a simulacra. It's become a copy of a copy of a carbon copy to the point where many new quote unquote coaches are trained in sales and marketing. And then all they know how to do is to acquire clients, not to care for them. They do not know how to hold an expanded place. And if they do know how to hold an expanded energetic state for their clients to step into, they do not have the humility to acknowledge, this is just a skill that I've acquired. It has nothing to do with me. Again, I'm not the sun. I'm just, the light is reflecting onto me. Um, they take responsibility for their clients' outcomes and do not acknowledge that what they're doing is a skill that other people can learn. And I think at this point where you're sort of like the fourth or fifth or sixth or seventh generation of this MLMification of coaching, many people in this space literally do not know, have never had coaching, have never had coaching. They've had something that's called coaching, but at this point, it's like having a cherry lemonade that is neither cherry nor lemon because it's these artificial sweeteners and flavors, nothing wrong with that. I'm sure that cherry lemonade could be delicious, but you are so far removed from just the concepts of a lemon on a lemon tree, a cherry on a cherry tree, sugar that grows from sugar cane, ice that is water that gets cold and is solidified and all of these things mixed and blended together. You are so far removed 
from what the original thing was that you don't even know what it is anymore. So to talk about the things that I really strongly disagree with in the coaching industry might be what I really strongly disagree with is the coaching industry. Ooh, I love that answer. And I, yeah, I feel you. I, I actually had someone, um, have, like we were having a conversation recently and she said basically the same thing that there are a lot it feels like a lot of people know how to market and how to create that hype and to get people inside something but then don't know how to actually deliver the thing um and I I think there's a lot of programs out there that are focused on teaching that um yeah we could do a whole separate episode couldn't we <laughs> and back to the point of integrity to circle back to what we where we started really if you've mm -hmm. never experienced coaching, you don't feel out of integrity. You feel like you are offering someone the same quality of what someone has offered you and you don't know any better, right? So if we wanna talk about um, the sort of philosophical challenge of selecting a coach, I used to teach yoga. I was a yoga teacher for a very long time. Yes, I've had a lot of jobs. I didn't have a lot of money. So I often had three, four five jobs at a time. And I used to run yoga studios and coordinate yoga retreats. So if you were to show me a photograph of a handstand, I can tell you from looking at it because I am an expert, whether or not that person is actually free holding the handstand or whether or not that person kicked up and took a screenshot before they fell over. I know this because I'm an expert because I have training in this, but a beginner might just look at that picture on social media, for example, and go, oh my God, she can do a handstand. Maybe I'll work with her because I wanna do a handstand, right? In any industry, it's very difficult for a beginner to choose among a sea of self-identified experts and know who is right for them. And then back to the integrity point, again, it is individual. And so if somebody doesn't have even an idea that they're doing anything wrong or that could be different or that it could be better or that coaching might actually mean something else, of course, they're not gonna present energetically as though they're swindling someone. It is going to feel really real because they believe that those are the things that they have to do in order to get clients. And they believe that that's what coaching is. Do you think there's an answer? No. <laughs> <laughs> if you could tell business owners across the world one thing, what would it be? Rather than focusing on what you know or don't know, can you just make it not matter so much? Like if you've never done it before, of course you don't know. So rather than being like, I don't know how to do this thing, which is true and fair and accurate, could you instead just focus on like, it doesn't matter, so I'm just gonna do something? the most perfect way to end the podcast i love that so much thank you so much for coming <laughs> and talking to me like oh my gosh so many like nuggets of information here that i just i'm gonna go away and re-listen because it was so good so thank you thank you thank you you're so kind i'm so honored to be here thank you so much where can people come and find you and work with you on Instagram at Ray Dohar, R-A-E-D-O-H-A-R. I show up there pretty frequently. I do also have a YouTube channel that is linked on my website, which is raydohar.com. And of course you can find me in my free Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash groups slash wild embodiment.